You are listening to the Cancer from A to Z podcast with your host, Dr. Rosalind Morell. Episode 18, Skin Cancer and Your Eye with Dr. Elizabeth Jiang. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer from A to Z podcast, where we discuss the issues and topics related to a diagnosis of cancer. I'm your host, Dr. Rosalind Morell. These podcast episodes are intended for informational and educational purposes only and are not a substitute for medical treatment by a healthcare professional. They do not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. Please consult your doctor or other health professional with any questions you have regarding any medical conditions. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Cancer from A to Z podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rosalind Morell. And thank you so much for joining me today and downloading this episode. So on today's show, I am interviewing ophthalmologist and oculoplastic surgeon, Dr. Elizabeth Jiang. And this is going to be a very interesting episode. And the reason why I say that is because she specifically treats skin cancers with oculoplastic surgery. Now, oculoplastic surgery can be used for other things around the eye and involving the eye, but skin cancer treatment is one of the things that an oculoplastic surgeon will treat. And today's episode, we're going to dig into the details of what she does and how she treats skin cancer in that particular area. So let me tell you a little bit about her. She, again, is an ophthalmologist from Cleveland, Ohio, and she earned her medical degree and her PhD in neuroscience at Case Western Reserve University before going on to Northwestern for residency in ophthalmology. Dr. Jiang completed a two-year oculoplastics fellowship at the Medical College of Wisconsin and learned Mohs reconstruction surgery from Dr. Gerald Harris, who happens to be a very big name in that field. So I'm really excited for you to hear today's episode. So let's get right to it. Okay. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time out to chat with our audience about you and what you do. So how's everything going this morning? Everything's going great. Good, 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 good. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, what you do and how you became um, an ophthalmologist and an oculoplastic surgeon? Yeah, so I'm an ophthalmologist. I trained at Northwestern in Chicago, which is a beautiful place to train, um, and then did a two-year fellowship in ocular plastics, which means everything around the eye. So think the eyelids and what we call the orbit, uh, so the space that the eye sits in and within the skull. Okay. And Chicago. I've been to Chicago a couple of times. It's cold. That's a really cold city. But you enjoyed your training there? Yes. I mean, it is cold in the winter, but the summers are beautiful. Mm -hmm. That's what I've that's what I've heard from other people. What was it about ophthalmology? So when you were in medical school, did you kind of already know towards the end that you wanted to do ophthalmology? Or did you know, like when you first started medical school, that that's kind of like where you wanted to no, it's definitely in, in doing rotation. So I found that I really love surgery, but I really loved fine, delicate surgery. And I really like plastic surgery and ophthalmology and especially oculoplastics is really just fine, delicate surgery. Mm, yeah. Yeah. The eye is such a small area. So I have a friend who's an ophthalmologist and yeah, I really um, and 
really impressed by you guys because that that is such a small area, such a small area. So tell me, um, tell us a little bit about in terms of, so you trained in ophthalmology and then you did additional training, so a fellowship in ocular plastics? Yes. Yeah, so ocular plastics is a two-year fellowship. Um, so mm-hmm. after ophthalmology, a lot of people don't realize this, but there's actually quite a number of fellowships. Most of them are one year. Retina and ocular plastics are typically two years. There are a few uh, select ocular plastics that's only one year, uh, but I did a full two-year fellowship. And what was it that made you want to do that? What was it that kind of drew you to that instead of the other types of fellowships? So ocular plastics is much more of a surgical-based field compared to some of the other specialties in ophthalmology, as well as really has, I think, the largest variety of different surgeries that are done compared to the other subspecialties within ophthalmology. Oh, okay. And so what do you see a lot in your practice? I know we're going to get into talking about skin cancer, but so is that a lot of what you see, a, a little bit of what you see? You know, it's varied. So a lot of the skin cancers I get both by, you know, primary care doctors seeing something like on the eyelid and wanting to just have it checked out or a dermatologist seeing something on the eyelid and wanting to be checked out or just someone seeing something on their eyelid and themselves, you know, choosing to go to uh, their ophthalmologist and uh, sometimes actually getting referred to me by another ophthalmologist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I also, you know, see patients a lot more for a lot of other eyelid conditions, you know, droopy eyelids, eyelids turning in, eyelids turning out. There's also, you know, the potential of someone who has like an actual a mass or tumor in their orbit. And so that's mm-hmm. another cancer that can happen as well. Right, right. And so when it comes to skin cancer, what do you see the most? I know, that obviously, there's squamous cell, basal cell there can be melanomas. But what do you see the most? Basal cell is by far the most common of the skin cancers. Mm -hmm. And so are most of your patients, when they come to you, are they coming from, you just mentioned like a dermatologist, but also who else would they potentially come from? Would it be like a primary care physician or do you mostly see them from a dermatologist? Um, definitely a lot have come from primary care doctors or come from uh, just patients themselves being like, I've got something on my eyelid and uh, mentioning it to their ophthalmologist or uh, optometrist. And depending on what it looks like, if it looks suspicious at all, then being sent for me, uh, sent to me to take a biopsy of it. And when you see basal cells, what do they do? They have a typical appearance or location if they're kind of around the eye. So the lower lid is more common than the upper lid. Um, there's also a lot of people who have it just kind of right next to the eyelid, like on uh, the side of their nose, like right by the eyelid. Uh, loss of eyelashes is is a sign of having some kind of malignancy. Usually if it's what's called a benign eyelid lesion, you know, something that's not cancer, then it's not going to destroy the, uh, the eyelashes. Mm-hmm. Um, a basal cell kind of Sometimes has this like pearly type of appearance. A lot of times cancers will have what we call telangiectasia or new blood vessels growing because the, the cancer wants to grow. And so it, you know, is producing um, biochemical signals to attract blood vessels so that it can get more nutrients that way. So sometimes there are more blood vessels in that area. Um, there may also be, since uh, cancers tend to want to grow somewhat quickly, there can be some what we call necrosis or the the tissue actually breaking down in that area because it's growing so fast, it's using up its nutrients uh, source. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what about squamous cell carcinoma? Um, squamous cell, I would say, probably has more of a range of what it looks like. 
again, with the blood vessels, the telangiectasia can be there. Uh, it can have uh, a different kind of uh, quality to the skin, like almost sometimes like a waxy kind of uh, mm-hmm. appearance. Um, but it, it definitely can vary quite a bit. And with squamous cell, do you see where that, because typically squamous cell can be definitely aggressive and, and show up in other areas, especially when we're talking about the head and neck area. But when you are, when a cancer is found kind of in the eye, do you have to worry about, you know, looking for other places like in the neck nodes or anything like that? For sebaceous cell carcinoma, we do do, uh, if it's found in the eye, we do what's called map biopsies, and we do actually uh, take other places to see if it's spread. But mm-hmm. typically with basal cell and squamous cell, mm-hmm. um, we don't actually look for other nodes. Basal cell especially doesn't seem to spread that way, at least on the eyelid. Um, right. Squamous cell, it, if it's a patient's first time having any kind of skin cancer, uh, we typically aren't doing any additional uh, like lymph node biopsies, but you know if if it's repeat, uh, usually I leave that to their oncologist. Right. Okay. All right. And so when you see um, a patient who has a lesion on their eyelid or around their eye, what? So what's the first step in terms of evaluating that type of cancer in that area? Yeah. So, you know, usually in the beginning, you don't know whether it's cancer or not. So the first step is really just to evaluate how suspicious does it look. So I will take photographs to document. I will take measurements, to document size, you know, ask patients questions like, you know, how does it feel? Is there any itchiness? Is there any discharge from it? Is there any bleeding from it? Is there any pain from it? Um, how fast has it been growing? Those, uh, how much sun exposure the patients had over the course of their lifetime, any medications uh, the patients are on, uh, if they're on like immunosuppressants for a long period of time. So then, you know, I take a you know good look at the actual uh, lesion with a microscope. And so usually looking at, at 10 times uh, magnification and, you know, some look like just have a more benign appearance. Like it, it's hard to to really state everything. Is you know I've just seen a lot. You know, but you know some just look like a papilloma or a actinic keratosis, and and those just have very, you know, just after seeing a lot of them, you kind of know just what they look right. like. But right. that being said, if it's uh, if it looks like it's growing, then that depending on how big it is is enough for me to want to biopsy it. So um, if it's something that you know hasn't been around for a long time. The patient's like, no, it really just popped up recently. I'll have them come back in a month or two. You know, if, if they have no you know, bleeding discharge and, you know, pain, itching, you know, everything else is negative, then I'll just have them come back in a month or two. And if it has grown, then, you know, talk to them about going ahead and biopsying, take it out. If it hasn't grown and it's not blocking vision or causing any other problems, you know, just continue to watch it, you know, because cancers will grow. Mm-hmm. Over time, so if you're if you're uh, paying close attention and taking pictures and measuring, you're going to see a cancer grow. And you know, a lot of times, like basal cell, it grows pretty slowly. So if it goes from you know three millimeters to four millimeters, you're not really losing a whole lot. And at the time that you have documented growth or you have documented, you know, obviously anything blocking the vision, I would just take out from the beginning. Or if they're really having like pain or uh, intense inching, then I might just take it out, you know, without even waiting for it to grow. Uh, and then anything I take out, I do send for pathology, even if I think it's totally benign, just because mm-hmm. you never know. So there was one time where I thought I was taking out a squamous papilloma, papilloma or more commonly called a skin tag, and it ended up being basal cell. Uh, and But luckily, I had taken all of it out. The margins were clean. So 
patient didn't have to do anything else. But when the margins aren't clean after the biopsy, and I'm not necessarily trying to take everything out because, of course, eyelid real estate is important. There's not <laughs> right. a whole lot of eyelid. So I try right. to take out you know, the, the obvious part of the lesion and and leave what looks normal behind. But if when the pathologist looks at it, they see that there, it's cancer and there's still cancer cells at the margin, then what I suggest is for patients to have what's called Mohs procedure. And that's typically done by a, a dermatologist who's done fellowship training in Mohs. And what they do is they go ahead and take more out, but then they immediately look at it um, microscopically. You know, they prepare the slides and look to see if there's still cancer. And if there's still cancer, they go back and take out more. And they you know do as many rounds as they need until they make sure that um, the cancer is all out and the patient's cancer free. And then typically, we'll, they'll do that in the morning and then come to see me um, in, the, in my OR as like the last patient of my OR day, and I'll do the reconstruction. Or sometimes what will happen is they'll see the dermatologist one day, and then we'll do and they'll get bandage, and then. I'll do the surgery the day after in order to close the area of of, um, where the lesion was taken out, where the cancer was taken out and reconstructed. Yeah. So, I mean, you're right. I mean, that's such a small area. And, you know, how if the patient comes to you from, let's say, a dermatologist, will they have already biopsied the lesion before sending to you? Or are you finding that if the patient comes from a dermatologist, they're allowing you to kind of do that initial biopsy just because of the of the location? So it depends on the dermatologist. But a lot of dermatologists, when it gets really close to the eye, don't feel comfortable and they'll send it to me for the biopsy. Yeah. And so talking about Mohs, so usually, so you're saying that on the same day that the dermatologist who performs the Mohs procedure will then send to you kind of like at the end of the day or end of your day in terms of your OR time for you to do the reconstruction. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, So they'll have their Mohs procedure, we'll like sit it up. So they have the Mohs procedure in the morning and then in the afternoon, you know, as soon as they're done with the Mohs procedure, they'll come over to the OR and, you know, I'll schedule them kind of as my last case, which we typically schedule for like one o'clock. And there have been times where, you know, the patient has to wait because they still have other surgeries ahead of them. And there are times where I'm sitting and waiting, you know, for the patient to be done with their Mohs. Um, I had one patient who actually had to go through seven times of taking out tissue before they got all the margins out. Wow. And so it, my understanding is that it's typically done in, in one sitting, right? The whole entire Mohs procedure, the patient is kind of, once you take out a certain amount, then that gets reviewed by the pathologist. And then you have to take more and more and more if things aren't, you know, fully removed, correct? Yeah. So when it's Mohs, actually, it's the dermatologists themselves actually looking at it. They're not sending it to pathology. I've, you know, had, you know, if I were to take it out in the OR, you know, there is the possibility that I could, you know, take some out, have, you know, send it to the pathologist, pathologist look at it, you know, take it out, and then do the reconstruction and not have a Mo surgeon uh, mm-hmm. do that part. But typically, it doesn't really make sense because it's not as efficient of a process as when the Mohs surgeon has like their holes set up. It's very streamlined, and they can actually do that procedure in probably less than half the time if I you know, cut out tissue, send it to pathology and wait for it to come back from the pathologist. Right, 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 right. Yes, you're right. Yeah. Usually the dermatologist is the one that's taken, taken a look at it. And so let's talk about your process in terms of reconstruction and, and how that works. Because I can imagine that when patients get diagnosed with a skin cancer around their eye, that can be really 
I mean, obviously, if they're seeing it in the mirror and, and maybe things have progressed, that's such a sensitive area. And so when it comes to having to have surgery and have that cancer removed and reconstruction, how do you go about fixing the area and, and what is the procedure involved in, in that? So it all depends on where uh, the tissue was removed and how much tissue was removed. And the thing is, is that, you know, often I'll see a patient in my office. So uh, actually, I would say the most common patient that I'm doing a reconstruction on is someone who actually did get biopsy somewhere else, got sent to the Mohs surgeon, and then the Mohs uh, dermatologist is looking at me like, yeah, I need an oculoplastics person to do this reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And so right. they'll send me the patient so that I can just take a look and talk to the patient about like the process and let them know before surgery. And and that's my preference, actually. Uh, I always think it's good to meet with a patient before doing surgery on them. I think mm-hmm. there are places where it's just, you know, t- you tell the patient that you're just going to get reconstruction afterwards and you meet the surgeon same day. And I can see in rural conditions, you know, rural environments where someone's driving like, you know, several hours or traveling that maybe that that's the case. But I've been in metropolitan areas during uh, throughout my career. So I've always uh, seen the patient prior to uh, doing the surgery. So then if it's, you know, small, it might um, actually just be, so, so, so it also depends if it involves the island margin or not. Um, so sometimes it doesn't actually involve the island margin. So like where the lashes are, where the edge of the eyelid is. And then sometimes it can actually just be uh, moving skin around in uh, creative ways. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, And so a lot of times patients who have skin cancer are a little older, so they do have a little bit of extra skin uh, laxity. So you can kind of create a a skin flap and undermine and and bring it in place. And uh, when you can do that, it usually heals beautifully. A lot of times you can't even tell uh, the defect later. So that's a great way of doing it. If it involves the island margin, it now depends just how big of an area is taken out. So if a quarter of the eyelid margin is taken out. Usually you can actually go ahead and directly bring it together and uh, loosen the, the eyelid at the, uh, what we call the lateral end, the outer portion so that you can kind of shift it over. And that heals really nicely. Um, if, you know, a larger portion of the eyelid is taken out, sometimes we have to take tissue from other places. Sometimes, so the lower lid, uh, is more common for skin cancer. So sometimes we'll take some of the tissue from the upper lid and bring it down to the lower lid. And, and sometimes we have to do a, a two stage procedure. Um, so the, the tissue will still be connected to the upper lid while it's connected to the lower lid. And then new blood vessels will grow in from the lower lid into that new tissue. And then you sever the connection with the upper lid. Mm. Um, a few weeks later, and then finish off the reconstruction. Sometimes you may need to get a skin graft from somewhere else, like behind the ear or around the clavicle, um, if it's a really large area of skin that's been removed. So it's, you know, it really depends. It's actually one of the reasons why I love doing reconstruction is that it's really creative, and you really uh, get to, to think quite a bit. And, but it's also amazing, I think, just some of the results, uh, uh, that you can get like even really large areas can be taken out and afterwards people can look, you know, quite normal. And so the the purpose is really to make it so that, you know, the eyelids fu- uh, have an important function to protect the eye. Um, the upper eyelid needs to be able to open and close properly. The lower eyelid more, you know, stay stable, uh, stay in place. Uh, also, sometimes uh, it can involve the tear duct. So sometimes I have to actually put in something to stent open and keep the tear duct open during the healing process. 
or do some other kind of surgery so that the tears can drain uh, after everything's reconstructed. Okay, so how long does how long is a typical reconstruction? I know the time would vary, obviously, depending upon the extent of what you have to do. But would you say that it's usually maybe a couple of hours or can it go even longer than that in terms of the reconstruction? Yeah, I would say on the short end is probably an hour and a half, probably on average, uh, two to three hours. Um, Longer ones can take four hours. So usually I have at least a sense of how big it's going to be. Sometimes I'm surprised at how much bigger it is. I'm almost never surprised that it's smaller than I thought. It's always unfortunately bigger than uh, I originally thought. Um, I think probably the longest one I've done has probably been under five hours, though. So not too long. Wow. Wow. And if you have to do, like, let's say a graft, and is the obviously you're taking tissue from another part. Is the healing process, what's what's the healing process like or how long does it take for things to heal up? I'm, I went to your website and I looked at some of the photos. I mean, they're beautiful. It's amazing how people heal so beautifully. It's, it almost looks as though they never even had a cancer or had surgery. Just That's just how fantastic it looks. But what's the healing process like? Like what do patients go through? Yeah, so I tell patients that whatever you see at six months is, is probably going to be what's there. But it's not that it takes six months to necessarily get there. It's just that, you know, we don't do further revision until after six months because it can continue to get better um, until that six-month mark. Um, so for uh, skin grafts, the what's really important is that graft to survive. So I typically, my the most common place I take the graft is behind the ear that uh, typically is, is skin that matches really well. And I just close that site with direct closure. Um, so that usually heals pretty f- uh, fine and people don't look behind their ears, so they don't mind if there's a little, right. you know, linear white scar there. Uh, And then the graft typically will not look quite like uh, eyelid skin. It will have a little bit, usually a paler uh, coloration. Um, But with makeup, it's, you know, the the difference in coloration is actually, I think, really easy to cover up. Though we don't have people use makeup until at least a month after uh, the healing process. Uh, so the the first week is kind of the most important. So right after surgery, I actually will suture what I call a bolster in order to hold that graft down to make sure that graft is really sitting on the bed of tissue, which is uh, muscle underneath, so that it can get start to get blood supply just transfused from blood in the muscle kind of diffusing some oxygen into that skin graft. And and actually, I put little cuts in the skin graft in order to have any kind of bleeding like come through so that you don't get a blood clot that prevents that oxygen exchange. You, you know, you want fresh blood, you don't want like clotted blood because uh, oxygen just won't exchange through a clot. So any kind of blood accumulation needs to actually seep out. And then I usually, I'll t- I uh, see the patient the uh, next day in clinic, take off the bolster, see how everything looks. And, you know, depending on how things are healing, I may see them three days later, I may see them a week later. Smoking is terrible for graft healing. Mm -hmm. And I really encourage uh, patients to stop smoking. I had one patient, he, his graft looked like it was failing. I was really worried it was just going to die. Um, He went to vaping and the graft did survive and he ended up having a pretty good result actually in Mm -hmm. the end. Yeah. 
Yeah, we tell. Yeah. Smoking is just bad all the way around, but definitely for surgery, definitely for radiation. It's terrible. Um, We need that oxygen. And I I have to tell patients that as well. You know, you need to if they're smoking, you need to quit. You need to cut back, but definitely try to quit as much as possible. So that's a good point to make for people to know. So in in this area, since it's such a sensitive area, what are the best ways for patients to protect themselves. Um, You know, we always talk about, you know, sun exposure and sunscreen and things like that. But in the eye area, what's one of the, what are some of the best ways to kind of help prevent a skin cancer from forming there? Yeah, sunglasses with UV protection for sure. And hats. And hats. Yeah, just blocking the light completely from reaching the eyes. Yeah, and I think that's really important to to mention because a lot of people don't wear sunglasses and a lot a lot of people I think especially when people have glasses like I do, you know, you can obviously get the lenses that change with sunlight, but a lot of people a lot of people wear them, a lot of people don't. But I don't think many people think about skin cancer forming around their eye. You know what I mean? I think they uh, you know, I don't know if we just don't we don't talk about it or people don't see it, but of course, you know, other places on the face and other places on the body. But, you know, not too many people, I think, think about, well, I could get a skin cancer on my eye, you know, in the eye area. And again, like you said, it's such a sensitive area. So I think it's really important for people to remember to protect themselves in that area as well. The important thing about glasses is that your typical eyeglasses that people get does not have UV uh, light protection, because uh, they're not actually made of glass, right? They're made of plastic. Right. Now, you right. can get a UV light coating on your eyeglasses uh, that will protect uh, against UV light. Uh, that's a clear coat. But, you know, they charge you extra, of course, for mm-hmm. all these different coats. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yes, it's like, you know, anything you want to do to try to help yourself, oh, we're going to charge you for it. <laughs> So I think that, yeah, I think, that, like I said, I think that's great for people to understand and and remember. What else about um, skin cancer would you say in terms of what you do? Do you think it would be in terms of important for people to understand and recognize? Let's let's actually, I want to ask you about melanoma. Let's talk about melanoma for, for a minute. How often do you see melanoma in the eye area? In the eye area, the most common place is probably the retina. And I'm not a retina specialist, so you know I, I'm probably not the one to really talk about like prevalence uh, for that. So there are people, you know, just like we've got you know freckles or nevuses that can become melanoma. Um, mm-hmm. there, it's the same thing with the retina. You may have a nevus that can become a melanoma, and so and you follow these patients with uh, photographs and you know regular checkups. There's, it's possible to get melanoma also on the iris part of the eye. Um, and so it usually starts with a nevus and, and again, photographs and just making sure it's not changing at all. Mm-hmm. But for but you don't see it often on the eyelid or the skin uh, in that so, area. Uh, n- well, I would say you know it does happen to the eyelid as well. Um, it's much less common than basal cell or squamous cell. I think I've had maybe two melanomas mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and... You know, the vast majority has been basal cell, a small number of squamous cell. And, you know, I would say, I would say probably 95% basal cell, you know, 4% squamous and 1% mm-hmm. melanoma. And, that's, mm-hmm. and I don't know if that's the overall prevalence, but that's kind of like what I'm thinking just anecdotally off the top of my head of what I personally see. And so... 
When it, if a patient was to have, let's say, an abnormality involving their eye and they see a dermatologist and the dermatologist says, you know, we need to do Mohs, you know, what I want to, f- you know, ask you is, you know, patients are pretty active. They're, they're very proactive. They do a lot of reading. Should they say to their dermatologist, let's say the dermatologist doesn't mention seeing an ocular plastic surgeon. The patient should, correct? I mean, if they're going to have Mohs surgery in this particular area, shouldn't, you know, shouldn't people say, well, hey, you know, if you're going to do that, do we need to get an ocular plastic surgeon involved? I'm so glad you asked that. So uh, where I was uh, first practicing, there was a uh, Mohs dermatologist and he sent me pretty much everything that was near the eyelid. And then another Mohs dermatologist came into town and, you know, I introduced myself to him and he wanted, for some reason, nothing to do with me. And I, I I don't really understand what, but uh, so apparently he would just do his own reconstructions. And if he couldn't do the reconstructions, he would just tell the patient, we'll just let it heal and see how it is. And the mm. way I found this out is that I had a patient where, you know, I saw them and I'm like, what happened to your eyelid? And they're like, oh, I had some skin cancer there and I had to have it removed. And then I found out that she had seen this particular Mohs dermatologist and he did not do any kind of reconstruction to the eyelid. And by the time I saw her, it basically had scarred in place. And so now she had a kind of permanent scar where I could have fixed it for her and no one would have, you know, known that she had this, you know, had this happen to her. So... I, I don't know what causes some most uh, dermatologists to work with oculoplastics and some to not. Um, I actually have a cousin who's married to a most surgeon and she sends everything oculoplastics when I was asking her. I think it has a lot to do probably where they train for their Mohs. So, but yes, I, I think patients being an advocate for themselves, if they've got a skin cancer that's near the eye to really ask if there's an oculoplastics person who can do that reconstruction. Right. I also did just want to add, kind of going back to the melanoma. So with uh, melanoma, there's it's unfortunately it's not um, the same kind of Mohs as with squamous cell or basal cell. Um, You have to have special stains to look for the melanoma, and so it takes a whole day for every single round. So as opposed to like twenty, thirty minutes for every round, and so like. If you start your Mohs on Monday, like you don't know if you're going to be done Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. Mm. Um, so that mm. actually becomes a lot harder uh, in terms of the coordination for the reconstruction as well, because, you know, I, I can't be on standby for like, okay, we finally got all the margins, we're going tomorrow. Uh, luckily, one of my Mohs reconstructions that I did do was during the pandemic shutdown. And because mm. it was cancer, you know, the hospital let us proceed. And because of the shutdown, I was actually available to go uh, whenever. Um, the margins were clear. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know it was that it's that it was that different. So wow. Yeah, that's well, that's good. In a way that you know, the pandemic was around and you were available (laughs) to to do that. So but that is definitely different than than when you do it for for basal cell. So I guess it's good that not that many people present with melanomas involving the you know, the skin around the eye. So well, I, I, I think this has been fantastic. Is there anything that we haven't touched upon that you think would be important for patients, caregivers, family members to know about skin cancer involving the eye, you know, the role of an oculoplastic surgeon? I know we've talked about a lot, and this has been fantastic information. 
Yeah. Uh, so once you've had skin cancer, you you know that your body has a propensity to potentially make more skin cancer because it's really the number one reason for having skin cancer is UV light exposure. And so if one part of you's had that much UV light exposure, probably more parts have. So it's super important to just have that annual skin check or however often the dermatologist wants you in for that skin check to get that full skin check so that you can find things uh, when they're smaller and that will make for much easier reconstruction. Good point. Good point. And I want to reiterate again, if you have a skin cancer involving your eye and you've seen a dermatologist, please ask. <laughs> please ask them to get an oculoplastic surgeon involved. Based on just the information that we've just talked about, I think obviously it's really important. Yeah. Anything near the eyelid. So, yeah. Um, which, you know, anything between uh, for your upper eyelid, like anything below your brow, uh, to the eyelid, anything kind of really on right on the side of the nose, and anything kind of like in what you would consider your upper cheek area, um, because if you reconstruct the upper cheek wrong, then that can pull the whole eyelid down. Good to know. So I always ask, how can people find you? You, this is again such fantastic information. I'm so happy you came on the show. Obviously, you're a talented uh, surgeon. How can people find you? Best way is probably to go to my website, which is www.doctoreyelid.com. Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show and giving this this. Uh, giving us this fantastic information. Um, I think it's an area, it's a specialty that obviously a lot of people don't necessarily know about. And I certainly learned something, you know, in my little world of uh, radiation oncology, I see a, quite a bit of skin cancer. But um, a lot of times when they come to me, they're, the cancers are in different areas of the body. Mm -hmm. And the eye is not one, the eye area is really not one that we you know, will that necessarily want to always, you know, treat with radiation depending upon the, the situation. So, so yeah, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Cancer from A to Z podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you subscribed and left a review. And if you know anyone who could benefit from this information, please share the podcast with them. Until next time, I am your host, Dr. Rosalind Morell.